This episode is powered by Safety FM. Welcome to the Safety Consultant Podcast. I am your host, Sheldon Primus, and this is the show where I teach you the business of being a safety consultant. And I've also have adjusted the idea of this show to also include me acting as your safety consultant. Yes, I am your safety consultant, and I've been getting a lot of questions uh, lately coming in and asking about my opinion on different things. And you know, I've I've always you know put it under my fifteen minute rule. I've got. Uh, I got a 15-minute rule. This is one of the rules that I've always used before, and it's truly if I can answer a question or even if I could just, um, if it involves not having to start doing research and I'm just answering a question, I'm just getting this thing uh, by, then generally what I do is if it takes 15 minutes or less, then it's a freebie. If it goes above 15 minutes, then we'll start uh, you know, prorating the the actual my actual rate. Uh, so that's I, I just threw it into that 15 uh, minute rule. But I do get a lot of those questions, and it just turned out that I actually have always thought of the show as teaching people what to, you know teaching them what I do. <laughs> people say that I'm teaching people to be my competition. Uh, that's okay. It's a it's a big world. We'll we'll be able to coexist. I just want to make sure that the service and the quality that is being called consultancy is going to be up to a high standard. So I don't mind doing that. But I am going to expand that definition to say I am your safety consultant as well as I am the safety consultant that is teaching you the business of being a safety consultant. That's a drinking game right there. As many times as you can say safety consultant, you know, there you go. <laughs> That's terrible. I should not say that. All right. So this week, what we're going to be doing, right, is going to do part two of the record keeping. So record keeping was one of the things that I have really tried to pay attention to in my career. I have done a few of uh, conferences where I was the, the person who was teaching a um, breakout session on record keeping. I've done that a few times in my career. So I, I am pretty familiar with that standard. And it's um, for the standard is 1904, which is in the Code of Federal Regulation 29. And it's 1904. That is the part. And that's what we've been going through. So if you have not listened to part one, then that's really a foundation. You need to know how are you going to, um, how are you going to pretty much decide that this thing is record keeping versus this other thing. And that term is called recordability. So the first thing that we did is we just figured and determined what is recordability. Moshe has a nice little chart very early in their subpart A of the standard that just says, uh, if this happens, then uh, go to the next stage. If this happens, then let's go down to the next stage. And it's pretty easy to follow. unless you start thinking of some of these things that are known exceptions. So there are some known exceptions to this rule. So you do have a few things that, um, for instance, 
I hear this one a lot is one of the known exceptions to the rule is if you're eating or drinking or preparing food for personal consumption, you can have something that is a bad enough injury that you need medical treatment. But because this activity is a known exception, then what it'll turn out to be is an injury that is not a recordable to OSHA, meaning OSHA doesn't need that in their log because of that exception. So that's what we did with part one. We went over that part. So let's go ahead and let's, uh, let's dig into the rest of this thing. So uh, again, if you need to go through the steps, uh, go ahead and do that on your own. And uh, this is just going to be picking up from part two. Uh, so part two, we're just going to start with, uh, let's call this still foundations of the rules. And then we're going to go into nuances of the rules. All right. So if you are thinking of uh, the, the mindset is, all right, I just determined that this event that just happened also had a component where there was a worker injury. The worker injury is to a degree that they need beyond first aid, they can, they're going to need medical treatment. So we'll take that at face value. So if they, you're determining now they need medical treatment, you're going to end up having to, uh, you decide at this point, you're going to end up having to know that this is going to end up in your 300 log, which is the log that is for uh, the record keeping for OSHA, the, the require that you put uh, your data into this log. Uh, it's a requirement that if anything happens that you got to get this thing in your log. Uh, I believe it's uh, 14 business days uh, is, you know, if you, you know, somebody gets injured and now you determine that uh, you have to record it, then uh, the record keeping says for your forms that you're going to end up having to get it within uh, that uh, calendar days. Now, hold on. It is not 14. That one is seven calendar days. If I'm remembering right, in 1904, section 29 would be seven calendar days. I'm sorry, I was mixing it up with something else, which is in 1903, which was uh, a citation amount uh, of days. So anyway, so let's uh, seven days. Let's get it clear. Uh, someone gets injured at your workplace, and then all of a sudden you're saying, "Oh, I got to put this in a." particular place for data entry, that form is called the OSHA 300 log. Now uh, the 301 log is the one that is akin to the first notice of injury log, where you just write down all the things that have happened, uh, where this person was being treated and everything else goes on the information. And then the 300A summary form, that's the one that's up in a prominent place at your business from February 1st until the end of April. Uh, most people see it at that time period and that reminds them that, oh, last year we've had this in our injury profile. Um, that's really what that one's for. That number system that's coming from the or going into this actual data set is coming from the 300 log. So there's a component of the 300 log where they start counting up days that have been missed of work or days where the worker actually had a restriction or days the worker had transfer. 
how that all gets tallied up on the 300 log. That tally for all those different categories will end up uh, going into the summary log. That summary log has to be posted every year. Um, that is one of the things that OSHA does really go and look at. Uh, if you are in the posting requir requirement time period, and you may be in one of those industries that will have frequent OSHA visits, it's low-hanging fruit for them to actually go through in the opening conference and while they're um, just pretty much going into your break room or wherever you're doing the opening conference, they could just see that and be like, okay, uh, I don't see anything here, so now I'm gonna ask, where is your 300 logs? And all of a sudden you can't produce them or, uh, oh yeah, we've got it here. We just keep it in the safety officer's uh, room. And if anybody needs it, it's available for them. They just have to ask. Uh, yeah, you're getting the site. Uh, <laughs> so truly, that's really what it'll boil down to uh, in those cases. That's how um, it, it shouldn't be hidden information. It's, it's required to be out in the public. Um, Let's go back to, um, there's a few other things. We did end up talking about first aid cases when we had episode one. Uh, I didn't mention that if there is any loss of consciousness and it's work related, then that is automatically a recordable event. You know, you don't have to uh, pass go on this one. You don't have to collect $200 uh, as a reference to the game Monopoly. You, know, you truly, at that point, it is a recordable event. Uh, if your workers are exposed to bloodborne pathogens, this one is kind of tricky. It's just how is this exposure? So is the exposure actually coming from a needle stick? Or is the exposure coming from a splash that could get into their face, uh, which will be into the eyes or the mouth or one of the modes of one of the four modes of entry of any chemical into your body, which is orally, and that could come through uh, ingestion, injection, where you get a cut or something similar to that, uh, absorption, and inhalation. So those are the four ways that any contaminant can get into your body. So therefore, uh, the bloodborne pathogen standard uh, for 1904, the recordability standard, let's say it this way, if someone gets a needle stick and it's potentially infectious material, and that is any bodily fluid, tissues, organs, lab cultures, any of that that has any kind of uh, fluids that are uh, bodily, human bodily fluids in any way, then that now becomes a recordable event at the needle stick, really when that event happened. Whereas, if someone gets splashed by this potentially infectious material, they go into their eyes or their mouth, it's not recordable yet. It's actually going to be that individual needs a diagnosis of some disease first, then 
you have to go ahead and say, all right, the exposure date was X, you know, two weeks ago or, or whatever. And now this person is not diagnosed with it. Uh, so that's really what you're, you're going to be using as the event and you're going to report that as, and it's a health hazard that the person just received. So that's the difference with those two. Uh, medical removal is when the doctor tells you that this person cannot work with this exposure of chemical X. <laughs> Remember uh, chemical X if you guys ever had kids growing up in the early 90s. Then you would be familiar with the Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> you never thought you'd listen to a safety podcast and hear a reference to the Powerpuff Girls, right? Uh, but anyway, that's Chemical X that they use with sugar and spice and everything nice to make Powerpuff Girls. So let's say that um, in some cases now, you've got Chemical X that you're working with and the doctor tells you, you keep exposing your worker to Chemical X it's in their bloodstream to a degree that is now dangerous. I have to medically remove this person because that toxicity level in their bloodstream is so high. Now that they uh, cannot be in this environment, I am going to uh, tell you under my doctor's care, they need to be transferred from one position to the next until their next test then we could see that their level has been reduced to an acceptable range and then they could go back to their normal duties and at that point the medical removal itself is going to count as a recordable event uh, if you're doing it voluntarily then that's different voluntary removal is you know you just being abundance of caution uh, then in those cases, you don't have to record that. So that's a little bit different. Uh, hearing loss is one of these two things. It actually has a lot of these standards that have two specific things to it. Uh, one is truly going to be uh, the thing that we've all done when you've worked in manufacturing or even construction or any place where there's going to be hearing loss potential. Uh, what we have done is... We've pretty much done a couple of things uh, related to, uh, I don't remember if you, you've uh, ever been in that booth and it's all silent and you have to hit the button that says, I hear this tone. And what you do, uh, it's going to be a tone at three different hertz. It's going to be one at 2,000, one's going to be at 3,000, one's going to be at 4,000 hertz. And then you're going to end up hitting that little button that tells the, the uh, attendant that, hey, I've heard this tone. So now a standard threshold shift, and I'm going to do this one by OSHA's uh, definition here for you guys so you can know it in 1904 section 10. Uh, a standard threshold shift is defined in OSHA's noise standard in 29 CFR 1910 section 95 paragraph G subparagraph 10 sub subparagraph I as a change in hearing threshold relative to the baseline audiogram. So meaning last year you did this thing and last year my numbers read this. So for each ear, your numbers that year would have said, 
at these tones, you are at this decibel uh, loudness to hear each one of these tones. So that's really what it's saying on that point. So uh, to finish the definition of an average of, meaning if you now have a change in your hearing decibel, an average of 10 dBs or more, at the 2,000, 3,000, or and 4,000 range in one or both ears. So that means an average of 10 decibels or more at all three of those ranges, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 hertz in one or both ears, you now have a standard threshold shift. You don't have a hearing loss yet because there's a big and in this one. So the second actual part of this is if the employee's hearing level is 25 decibels meaning the 2000 3000 4000 hertz now let's say i've got a standard threshold shift an sts in my left ear and now i'm listening to the tones and i'm hitting those little buttons and the results happen that in my left ear i have to crank up uh, 11 decibels more at the 2000 hertz, 3000 hertz, and 4000 hertz average down. Then I've got the standard threshold shift ears on my left. And now let's say I also had to crank up totally from the 2000, 3000, 4000 hertz, 25 decibels average down or more. Now I've also have uh, what's the criteria would be a hearing loss event. So in those cases, that becomes a recordable injury. Uh, so uh, truly, if you are going to uh, send your workers out, especially when you're examining your baseline, you know you want to make sure that. Uh, each time you have to give at least a two hour window uh, for your ears are going to just be outside of high decibels and to get a nice rest and then go ahead and do those autometric exams. I guess if you really want to look good, you could you know, have high high noise on the baseline exam. And then next year when the employee comes back, they'll be like, man, what are you guys doing over there? Oh, they're less than their baseline. You guys are actually helping them restoration on your hearing. Uh, no, don't do that. <laughs> I've been seeing that facetiously. So don't do that one. All right, but there's a whole lot more in that standard threshold shift and everything else. So if you really uh, needed to see that, you'd have to go into some numbers and do some math and uh, and the age factors and everything else with the hearing loss going down. So uh, I'm just giving you guys just a basic overview. All right, tuberculosis is one of those things that's also addressed in the standard. It's saying that if you do have a case of this and you have exposure and it's work-related exposure, not exposure to anything in the home environment or even on a volunteer basis or anything else, if there's exposure at work, then and you get it. Now it is going to be treated as a work-related illness. Uh, so uh, that's really what you're looking for. The employee's exposed to work, and uh, and you actually you you, you uh, definitely would be at that point a work-related injury if you get 
the actual uh, tuberculosis in those cases. However, if you do have that exposure at home or any place else, the workplace doesn't know where the exposure is coming from. So what that means is you're really going to end up having to dig into somebody uh, where they actually go, including volunteer places. And if it's reasonable to say that they could have contacted TB somewhere else, then that would be an, ex uh, an exception to that rule. Uh, so that'd be good. You want to take those exceptions out. Oh, just to digress slightly. The 300, 301, 300 A forms, uh, they actually do have a um, equivalent online. Uh, OSHA does require in March that uh, people in certain industries actually have to record electronically. Uh, so those forms will have an additional deadline. Um, not everybody has to do this. If you are exempt from record keeping due to uh, the size exemption or even the exemption because you're in um, on that list that OSHA has, uh, they, they have a list in 1904 and it's a chart full of people who are exempt. So if they are exempt, then they still stay exempt. They don't have to do any kind of electronic record keeping. You know, that doesn't change their exemption status. However, if you now are people who have uh, employees that are uh, with 250 or more, you're going to end up having to do electronic record keeping. Or if you have 20 employees up to 249 and you're in a certain classification, and, uh, and that's all by your NAICS code, which is the North American Industry industry classification system code know your NAICS code I've mentioned it several several times and it's really one of those important things uh, that I just keep going back to in, in my podcast history because you got to know that one um, but these certain codes OSHA is saying you people once you have 20 to 249 in this code this code is a grouping of people who do the exact same type of work uh, so in those cases they have the same exposure and a systemic exposure but uh, truly OSHA is saying you guys have to do electronic record keeping along with anybody that's got 250 employees at a time so that's one of the things that you're also going to make sure that you're going to be aware of uh, with the electronic record keeping. The physical form of the 300A, make sure the only person that signs that is the highest executive at that location. And uh, that, that brings me to establishment versus firm. So this is an establishment-based uh, policy an establishment is one physical location, whereas a firm may have several different establishments. And uh, we may have establishments all over uh, a Phoenix group or a New York group, and you have an Orlando group. Each one of those are going to be their own establishment, meaning they have their own set of forms and their own set of uh, records that they're keeping and required to keep. The firm is everybody. 
So there's a difference between establishment and firm. And if you're thinking it establishment-based, then you're also thinking the criteria for recordability will change for each establishment depending on your activity there, your NAICS codes. So it benefits to have a couple of establishments that may actually be um, services such as consulting services or services such as um, administration because those are exempt activities from record keeping. And then whatever your establishments are that has the workers, whatever your NAICS codes for that would be, is the establishment depending on a few other things but that would be your establishment that would get the ocean record keeping um, one so firm versus establishment's a little bit different make sure you grasp that one as well so i know it just threw a whole bunch of stuff at you that's why this is in podcast form so you can always go back and re-listen to it and uh, make sure you follow along with 1904 with everything i say so just crack open 1904 and then just pretty, pretty much, you know, follow your finger down there. That's why I'm even referencing the, the sections. So when you hear me say section, that's the dot on your uh, in your standard. Uh, so anytime you look at the standard 1904, like the forms, uh, talking about an equivalent form, it's going to be section 29. Um, the dot is section so that's uh, that's when i give you the section number that's what you're looking for on your physical uh standard guide all right let's uh do this one more time uh actually it's a little bit more than one <laughs> so uh seven calendar days i corrected myself that's when you gotta log your uh your injury whenever you do notice you have an injury if it's a really sensitive topic that this person was involved in uh, then you might want to just put privacy case on the 300 form instead of putting the, the actual person's name uh, so you'll see you know maybe there's an intimate part, part of the body got injured and you may want to put that person's name uh, let's just say that uh, privacy case instead of that person's name. So that's an example of why you would do that. There's a few other ones, but uh, that's a big one. If you got multiple establishments, then basically your forms, like I mentioned before, has to be um, separate for each establishment. If you have people that jump around in all your different establishments, then just assign them one uh, so that they know exactly that this establishment over here is assigned to me and all my paperwork documents to OSHA. I'm the Houston area, uh, something similar to that. Uh, if you are only keeping a company less than a year, then you don't actually have to start doing the uh, 300 form at that. So uh, you're, you're going to really dissolve it. So might as well just let finish up what you're doing with them and then uh, file it after you dissolve the company. So don't get rid of it. Just file it. Um, Temporary employees are also part of your record keeping. This one does get a little bit convoluted, but if you supervise somebody on a day-to-day -day basis, you're going to be their boss. And that's even with temp agencies. Uh, contracts are important to OSHA, so you 
make sure your contracts are worded properly just to delineate who uh, who has the responsibility or the role to report to OSHA if there's an injury. You can delineate who takes the OSHA hit, who takes the workers' comp hit in a contract. OSHA will, will go by that. But generally speaking, uh, make sure the contract is going to be uh, fair for both parts, yes. But you want to make sure that you have a clear-cut delineation to who notifies OSHA when there's an injury regarding, regarding this individual. But to OSHA, I'll tell you, they're going to think and the questions they're going to ask is going to really break down to who's supervising this person on the day-to-day, who do they report to, who's telling them what to do, who's doing the PPE. And if it's the host employer, you definitely will still have liability. So you're not trying to... Uh, well, hopefully the thought process isn't, you know, how can I transfer the most liability? Yeah, the thought process it should be, uh, how do I make sure I'm compliant in this case, but then also how can I take care of my worker too? So that's, that's the thing. So whoever supervises that person to the day-to-day basis, this is in Section 31 of uh, 1904, that's the person that is going to be uh, responsible. Uh, if you are self-employed or if you have a partner in your business, you guys are exempt. Uh, what you do need is uh, if you do hire one W-2 employee, that's a IRS term in the U.S., and that just means that you are now uh, hiring somebody as your employee. The form W-2 is what they get um, as an employee so that they can submit that for their taxes. Uh 1099 miscellaneous is another IRS form. Uh, this form in particular is a form that is for those who are self-employed and only doing project work. So as long as you hire through this 1099 project work, there's no employer-employee relationship with OSHA. Uh, so therefore, at that point, uh, you are your independent contractor. So it's safe that way, and that's a, a difference. However, if you're hiring somebody and it's W-2, uh, then at that point, they're your employee because you have that employer-employee relationship. Truly, OSHA now says you need to protect this person. So that's the gray area between the temporary worker and the worker you hire. If you supervise that temporary worker, they're yours. So I was just going to look for that one. Um, the 500 form, excuse me, the 300 form, the one is Oh, I think. All right. The 300 forms and the 301, 308. Um, you got to retain them for five years, but OSHA had a big issue with this uh, a few years back. So I'm going to give you the JITS because you don't need to know details on this one. You can look it up, folks, V-O-L-K-S rule. Uh, OSHA used to be able to cite, or they did cite, up to five years for some violations with 1904. Uh, This one company recently, and it was like 2016 or 2017, so fairly recently, challenged OSHA on this. And it turned out that they were right. OSHA was not supposed to do that due to a provision in the OSHA Act that says six months is the max 
that OSHA has to cite somebody once a violation is found. Uh, so therefore, going back five years was against that uh, legal thing that's in the OSHA Act, and therefore uh, that is struck out by what was called a um, Congressional Review Act. Uh, a majority of Congress, a majority of senators decided that this ruling is wrong and, uh, and it's no good, so it needs to go. And that's happened. They give this thing to the president. The president at the time uh, will sign off on this thing. And now it's gone and it's gone for good. That's one of those things with Congressional Review Acts. Uh, you will never, ever have this come back. Kind of like the ergonomic rule that was signed in 2000, uh, Congressional Review Act. They took out the ergonomic rules that was in OSHA. So now they will never, ever, ever, ever be an ergonomic standard uh, because of the Congressional Review Act. Unless there's some sort of amendment to the law, uh, at this point, it's not going to come back. So in those cases, there'll be a 5A1 rule, which is a violation of the general duty clause. All right, so that's a little bit on a sidebar over there. Uh, so I already talked about um, making sure that you're going to do your electronics a little. Uh, I talked a little bit about your annual report, making sure the only person that signs it is the highest exec. So I'm going to wrap up this conversation with a few extra thoughts. Uh, not too much, but uh, let's, let's finish this up with, with just the last few things to remember. So uh, employees must be able to have a way to actually say, I've got injured and I need to report this thing. And they must feel comfortable in that reporting system or else that could be a violation of their uh, their rights and that could get you a, health, a healthy fine. Uh, so you don't want that to happen. So keep those employees uh, involved. Uh, if they are in any way discriminated against because of uh, what they're doing, then that's a violation of the 11C rule in the act. So you don't want to get that. So truly, just go ahead and, and follow up on that one. Uh, incidents. They used to be a little bit higher range, but several years back, OSHA says a fatality is a call within eight hours of you finding out. And then uh, the call for someone going to the hospital is 24 hours, and it's one person that goes to the hospital, one loss of an eye, or one amputation. You have 24 hours, and when you find out that you're going to have to make sure that you, you call OSHA on that one. Uh, so that's a, a requirement there. Uh, you don't need to call if any of those things happen on a highway or, or roadway, commercial airline, train, subway, buses. Those are different jurisdictions. Uh, so you want to record those if it, if it was a fatality or a catastrophe in those uh, scenarios. You record it, but you don't report it because that report's going to go to another entity like um, you know, FAA or DOT or something similar to that. So you're good with just recording it, but you don't need to report it. Uh, OSHA shows up. you got four hours to make sure that you give them all that material that you're keeping for five years. Uh, that's uh, some of the things that you want to do. All right. Um, I would like to 
I'll give you one more scenario. And this is the scenario, and I'm even going to use my little game show thing again, because I like the way it came out last week. So in case you uh, you don't remember, I gave I read uh, a letter of interpretation from Osha, and while I was reading it, I finished and I gave you guys this as a little time to think. And it was just a really quick uh, a really quick game show. Um, they call it music sting, but this is what it was. So that's going to be your time to think. All right, so let me read this. And this is literally coming from a letter from someone who didn't know what to do, and OSHA gave him the response. So here's the letter. An employee returns to Atlanta on a Saturday morning from an out-of-work, uh, out-of-town work trip. The employee is not scheduled to work on Saturday. The employee leaves the Atlanta airport and decides that he will not take the direct route home, but instead will go to a nearby convenience store. The employee drives past the highway entrance in his normal route home and drives to a convenience store. At the convenience store, the employee purchases gas, uh, food for himself, flowers for his wife. After leaving the store, the employee takes the surface street towards a highway uh, that would take him home. The employee is involved in an auto accident and is injured. Is the is the accident work related? That was the question. Now, so is the accident work related? So that is the question. I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, play my, my music over here and give you guys a, a little chance to think about it. All right. Hopefully that was long enough for you to think about it. <laughs> that was long enough for me to just uh, go ahead and fill around and play with this one. All right, so this one was coming from a letter of interpretation February 12th, 2015 uh, from someone that was calling uh, from a company in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so that is the, the, the notice. And OSHA ends up saying this. So OSHA ends up saying truly that uh, the worker was doing something that was... Uh, consistent with having a vehicle given to you or using that you're using this vehicle for work activities and that thing is getting gas so the person got injured while it's getting gas even though they stopped and they actually got flowers for the wife you know they're doing a great thing uh, so in this case they were doing something in the interest of the employer, which was the getting the gas part. All the other things that they're doing while they're at the gas station does not matter. And so therefore, uh, it wasn't really a personal detour uh, because of that reason. If he just went, stopped, bought all that stuff, at that point, that would be considered a personal detour. But in the eyes of OSHA, they're saying the mere fact that he stopped to get gas 
is something that you normally do in the interest of the employer when you are using a vehicle outside of work for work. Uh, so therefore, that means that this one is going to be a work-related event. It is recordable for so all you people that said, no, that's not recordable. There you go, twice. <laughs> it is actually a recordable event. So there you go. That's the kind of stuff that I, I deal with from time to time, just going over that. That particular case, it took me a little while to kind of figure that one out. You truly have to... You have to reconstruct a scenario as best as you can. Uh, and then if you really go back to the standard, 1904, it has the answer. You may not like the answer, but it has the answer. You just have to make sure you start interpreting properly. And that's the way to do it. All right. Well, before we go, thank you, everybody, for, for hanging out with me on that one. That one was kind of cool. That was me hitting the wrong button again. <laughs> I can't really figure out my buttons here. So before we go, I just want to remind you that I am doing Revealing the Secrets to OSHA Compliance, the Safety Consultant Playbook. I am teaching you what I do when I have to sit in front of um, a client with OSHA and we do an informal conference. Uh, for the most part, I'm there with me and my business partner, Kevin Yarbrough. Me and Yarbrough are the two halves of uh, Shellbrough Safety. And uh, we represent people with those problems. And we go there and that's what we do. Uh, so I'm going to help you out in a one-day online event. And this is going to be July 16th, 2021. And it's going to start at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, my time zone. And I'm going to end it at 3.30. We're going to do a lunch break in the middle of that. So it's not going to be straight class. We're going to take a little uh, break, breather in there, a nice half-hour uh, lunch stretcher. Uh, we're also going to learn, truly, I'm teaching you, this is how you're going to find how to stay OSHA compliant regardless of what administration's out there. You'll always know the basics of keeping up and being able to flow with OSHA. So I'm going to teach you those secrets. That is what we're going to learn. I'm going to break it down to you as simple as I can. Early bird pricing is available right now. You just go to SheldonPrimus.com backslash events. And that's SheldonPrimus.com backslash events. E-V-E-N-T-S. So when you get there, just go ahead and sign up for Revealing Secrets to OSHA Compliance, the Safety Consultant Playbook. Only 20 tickets are going to be the early bird tickets. So that's all we got for this one. Uh, it's available right now. So go ahead and go to SheldonPrimus.com backslash events. Have a wonderful rest of your day. I'm glad that you guys were hanging out for me. This concludes the the two-parter that we just did on uh, figuring out the record-keeping. 1904 has got the answer. Again, you may not like it, but you should go back in there and dig into it slowly. Take your time with it. All right. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Go get them.
This episode has been powered by Safety FM.